We are considering the duration of God as revealed in the Bible and how philosophy sadly entered into the thinking of the church. And here are two diametrically opposite approaches. The concept of the philosophers is self-sufficiency. We don't need any divine revelation. Let's think out our problems. We can handle everything. Our minds are supreme. We're not going to accept any professed revelation. We're going to decide what we're going to accept and believe. It's our minds that are uh, supreme in conclusion. The concept of Christianity has been that man has so encumbered his mind in rebellion against God that he just lacks the clarity to think out his situation. And so man is dependent on God to straighten him out in his thinking. And this has been the long process of revelation, starting way back with Adam and Eve and, and on the early leaders of the enterprise of reconciliation. And so here are two opposite approaches. Uh, and uh, it was a sad day as we've sinned when uh, philosophy began to get more power in the church as Christianity became popular. And you wouldn't have to pay much now to be a Christian, so it was a popular thing. And we have to have some complications then to talk about. We can't have simple things requiring submission to God. And so you can see the, the rise of the clergy as a separate group of privileged individuals who were supposed to be looked up to. And the idea of ministry, as Jesus gave us, is not the idea of an elevated clergy, because Jesus said, I'm among you as one that serveth. He said, I didn't come to be ministered to. I came to minister and to give my life a ransom for many. And so the call of God was a call to ministry and service. But now we have a, a concept of supremacy coming into the more and more popular view. And so they conceive that God must not be in a duration of time. He must be some kind of a being apart from time. And, uh, of course, there can't be any new observations in the experience of God. So he must know every single I.O. to every detail. Now, remember, friends, you cannot have a knowledge of the big things without a total knowledge of the little things. Because the big things result from the little things. And so this is a tremendous thing to ask anybody to believe. And so here we have the, the, the situation. There's no succession of thoughts then. It was affirmed in the divine being. Everything is one grand expression of some sort. And of course, the net result is God's removed from our conscious understanding. We can have no understanding how there would be an existence of a being of this dimension and so on. So this has a deadening effect upon, our spirit, upon the spiritual life. As complications came in, which God never intended, of course, to be. And so, after a very, very extensive study of what the Scripture has to say, gathering hundreds and hundreds of passages, we've come to select a few here to represent the ideas that seem to be what the Bible has to say in the matter. And so we have our proposition, which we have affirmed that the Godhead are revealed in the Bible as living in an endless duration of time, having a succession of thoughts, 
experiences and volitions or a genuine chronology, a historical order of events in their existence. And uh, we just take a few scriptures here. We have some general statements of this matter of time. We have our limitations to a few uh, illustrations of these various passages. We have twice in the book of Revelation the simple statement of the past, present, and future with God. An example is Revelation 1.8. I'm Alpha and Omega. These are the first and last letters of the Greek alphabet, as you realize. Says the Lord God, who is, who was, and who is to come, the Almighty, giving us the concept that there is a present with God. There was a past, and there is a future. The future is not now. There is a present with God, as well as with us, if we're going to understand this. Then we have the idea of reasoning, many times uh, illustrated and represented concerning God. Now, you can't reason without a duration, can you? The reasoning process requires a succession. You have one thought here, then you have another thought here, then you draw a conclusion. You can't have a reasoning process without a duration, can you? And so God is represented as reasoning so many, many times in the Bible. And we think of that greatest expression, uh, Isaiah 1.18, where God invites man, Come now and let us reason together, says the Lord. And he wants to reason upon the wonderful blessings of reconciliation. We have uh, emotions represented concerning God. And oh, what a study this is. This, my friends, revolutionized my whole concept of the being of God. This reading I referred to was in 1938, so we've had a lot of time to digest and appreciate these wonderful things. And as I set aside a whole vacation time now to read the whole Bible through in about 12 or 13 days, 17 hours a day generally, just getting away from the world of business and responsibility and just trying to get along with God during this vacation time. And just praying that the Spirit of God may move us out of this old world into the domain of God's being and help us to learn what we can learn about the operations of God. And this was the most serene period of time in my life. We all should have extended periods of time when we draw away from the world and uh, try to avoid any disturbance because it takes you a half a day to get your mind in order if we have different business responsibilities and different responsibilities in life. And, and if you disturb this order, then it's another period of time before you get back. So there must be some kind of a period of time in our lives when we will have a concentrated evaluation of the secrets of God. And there came out of this reading such a restfulness, such a blessed concept of the being of God and the greatest thing probably was the concept of emotion in God. I thought I found a hundred passages or so in the Bible that expressed the brokenheartedness and grief of God over man's sin. In my theology, I was taught this is kind of arbitrary. God, this is here. He did something else there. did something else here. Nobody's supposed to ask any questions. These are the simple things that are taking place. I never got the idea of my theological training that God was sensitive and that he, he was limited in what he wanted to do and he was grieved in the depth of great divine consciousness over the way man had treated him. 
And this draws us out with such sympathy. Now, my friends, this is a sympathy that comes out of intelligence. We have all kinds of approaches toward worship, many of which are, is, is not a development of worship based on intelligent understanding of facts. There is so often an endeavor to lift men's minds above theological complications into the area of emotional worship. And this is very temporary and very ineffective. But when we sit down and learn something about God and really are satisfied about something about God, there comes such an automatic, spontaneous response of drawing out of our personality. And so with such a deep movement, you notice if you looked ahead in our manual, the consequences of sin. Number one consequence we represent is not what sin did to man, but what sin did to God. I was never taught this in any theological presentation. And yet this is exactly the deep, affectionate revelation of the Scripture. What sin did to the plans of God and the great bounty of the love of God is an utter, colossal tragedy. The greatest tragedy that a God of love and hope and purpose should be so disappointed that little tiny man doesn't want any more exposure into the endless dimensions of the infinite divine being. It is unthinkable that man should be so stupid and so rebellious. And to think that God has a consciousness of all he has to give man, and little tiny man doesn't want it. And so God's consciousness of his love builds up a pressure in the divine being and this brings the intensity of sorrow and disappointment that the scripture reveals. Oh, my friend, praise the Lord. What this did to me, it drew my heart out in worship and sympathy with God. And we say, oh, Lord, I'm just a tiny little speck of a personality in your little world here. But one thing I can do is make one little contribution toward your happiness. I can't control what other people do. But we can have one place in, our, in God's existence where God is not going to have sorrow and disappointment. And here then we have the greatest motivation to live for God, to contribute to the happiness of God. And I like this part of section 11 where we talk about continuation in the love of God. And so the Bible reveals the sorrow and disappointments of God. Oh, how deep there could be nothing greater expressed than you have in Genesis 6. Here God has one single person on earth who wants to have an exposure of mind. And so as God is represented, going from mind to mind. Do you want me today? No, I'm busy. How about you? Do you want me to? No, I'm inventing evil. I can't be bothered with you. Then, then what about you? Do you want me today? No, I'm busy. Uh, and so on. And here God goes from mind to mind and he finds one who is interested in opening up the personality to him. And he is grieved in his heart, and he repents that man had been created. And, and we study, we give you later on a study of the Hebrew word that is translated repent. It is regret. It is a deep pathos of sorrow that man had been created since this devastating result happened. 
and now God is reduced. This would be something for many theologians to think about who say that God's will is being done. Could anybody conceive it to be God's will and plan that there should be one on earth who would respond to Him? That would be a very strange deduction, wouldn't it? And so as we see the tender and the pathos of God, what a moving situation. Uh, we can't just but say a couple of things here. Here we have Abraham. You know, he's God's plan to build a nation uh, through Abraham. He can't reach the world to an individual. He has to build a nation. And uh, he made these many promises to Abraham. And, and here, finally, Isaac comes on the scene. And uh, now he is apparently near 20 in this area. And now God says, I want you, Abraham, to take him up and offer him on the altar there. And early in the morning, no consecration necessary. He's busy to do what God told him to do, this terrible, terrible, awful thing. To take uh, this heir of the promises and everything looks like everything's going to collapse now. Uh, because everything is wrapped up in Isaac now. And take him and offer him. And you know this story, how he couldn't have been compelled to do this. So there must have been a confidence in Isaac as well as Abraham. And here, he's going to do just exactly what God says, no matter what the consequences are. So here it comes to the point of an altar, uh, whereas the sacrifice, they said, as they walked up, well, uh, it was was going to be different this time. And here we have Isaac all bound and on the altar. And Abraham takes his knife, going right on through with this matter of this terrible, terrible thing that God told him to do. And then we have some excitement on the part of God. Isn't that remarkable? How would you plot the emotions of God? Would you have a straight line with no new discoveries? Is this the way the Bible represents it? No, we read in Genesis 22, 12. Excitement on the part of God. And as he sees Abraham going through, down comes the vestige. Do not stretch your hand out your hand upon the land. And do nothing to him, for now I know that you fear God, since you've not withheld your son, your only son, from me. So if I read a story like this, God makes a discovery. And he sees his servant doing this terrible thing. And he says, no, I sure know. There's nothing in your life you won't do. And so God has pleasure. He has a great emotional pleasure over this. Because he's making an observation. Is everything going to be routine? There must be a reason why people want 20-minute sermons, don't you think? As you study the glorious revivals of the past, where great truth was discussed, and great presentations were made, in a a powerful anointing of the Holy Spirit, you find people wanting to stay, to listen to God's Word, and to hear these explanations of excitement. And so we see God has tender emotions, do we not? We have that lovely little song, uh, Zephaniah 3.17, and that's such a sweet thing, isn't it? Uh, But this talks about the deep emotions of God, doesn't it? The Lord your God in the midst, a victorious warrior, he will exalt over you with joy. He will be quiet in his love. He just wants to relax with us as we love him and worship him. He'll rejoice over you with shouts of joy or singing. Are we going to allow God to have emotion? Are we going to have, allow God to have experiences? You see what has happened? Theology has frozen over our concept of the living God and has made our, our life of devotion a complexity. And we don't see the intelligence of what we're supposed to be doing. 
to allow God to live in the duration of time and have these sensitivities, have these expectations. What's he going to do now in this opportunity? And then have them rise up. We'd like to talk about Job. There was an argument in heaven. Uh, the devil came up and said one day, you haven't got anybody down there that loves you. Why, they're just, doing, they're just good to you because of what you're doing for them. So a big argument comes up in heaven. Because yes, I have. Have you considered Job? And God has fences around all of us. Let's be careful that we don't attribute our spiritual victory to ourselves, Or God may take down some of the fences and show us where we stand. This is what God had to do with Peter, wasn't it? He said, I'm great. I'm great different than all the rest of them. And God had to take down the fences of Peter and show how, how weak Peter was. All right, here's some fences around Job. And the devil says, the trouble is you don't give me enough rope here. You give me some more rope, but we'll show you that he doesn't love you. And you know the story, the rest of it. And then it comes, Job. <laughs> he says, though he slay me, yet will I trust him. And so God says to the devil, who wins the argument? <laughs> Look what you did. You moved me to take down all these fences and, and allow all this terrible catastrophe to come to my servant, Job, just because you didn't believe me. And God can point to the devil, and the devil goes off in defeat like he always does. Are we going to allow God to live in a duration of time, to, to have excitement over us as his little children? Or are we going to have these great big immensities of concepts with all their long words and discussions? Oh my, praise God, it's hard uh, to not keep right on as we feel the blessings of the Lord in this area. And so we have different acts of, of, of activities that God has uh, uh, expressed himself in. We have the whole process of creation, do we not? When God did specific things at specific uh, times. And uh, we have an instance of this in the, a, a, a repeat of this, we might say, in Exodus thirty-one seventeen. And here we have God uh, doing certain things in past and then, then looking back over something he had done. Obviously, there is a duration with God. Or how could he do things at specific periods of time? And how could he look backward over what had been accomplished? So we have the simple statement here. In six days, the Lord made heaven and earth, 3117. But on the seventh day, he ceased from labor and was refreshed. This is back to the first chapter of Genesis. And God saw that all that he'd made. And behold, it was very good. And so God completes the operations of creation and looks backward in admiration over what has been done. How would he do this if there's not a genuine chronology, of course, in the operations of God? And so we see some very simple things coming up as we get to the Scripture. God has care and oversight over us as his children. And what a sweet uh, idea this is. Uh, we have a passage here in Deuteronomy 23, 14, which is a very sensitive passage from God's heart. And he wants to live with us and help us in every situation, doesn't he? But it depends upon our attitude toward him. Since the Lord your God walks in the midst of your camp, to deliver you and to defeat your enemies before you. Therefore your camp must be holy, that he may, must not see anything indecent among you, lest he turn away from you. So the concept is God is living with us in our duration, and he's, he's making observations of our reaction, and he's making up his plans uh, to do for us what he can 
in accordance with our actions. And so we see the, the lovely representation of God's heart. Uh, God has made many decisions and changed His mind in decisions. Uh, we'll have a little more reference to this later on. Uh, here you have the uh, second of Exodus uh, 23 and 25 where Israel is under this awful persecution in Egypt and, and God sees their stress and He decides to deliver them. And uh, we have later on the terrible catastrophe of the golden calf. This is one of the most dreadful things you can think of in the treatment of God. We all know the story. Moses is up on the mount with God to receive the sacred revelations. And here they've erected this calf. They got this idea from Egypt, remember? Egypt had the, the cattle god idea and the golden uh, uh, images of the cattle and uh, so on. So says, well, let's do the same thing. And so they're dancing around this thing. And this is the God that did all these things. Yeah, here's the God that brought us over the Red Sea. And my, 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 can you conceive of such a, an apostasy? And God says to Moses, you better get down and see something terrible is going on down here. You better get down and see what's going on. So Moses carries the tables of the law written in the finger of God. And when he comes down below the cloud and sees all this carrying on, it just breaks his heart. He takes the tables and just smashes them down. And, then, and it seems like he made another trip up to God, another 40 days. And the intimation is that he didn't say anything for 40 days. We can't exactly prove this, but it seems that this is the picture that is given to us. So he falls upon his face before God, and he's sympathizing with God. Remember, God had said, now, Moses, I can't take any more. This is the end of Israel. I'm going to start all over again with you. You're going to replace Abraham now in my plans. I can't take any more of this action. And then Moses, in his humility, humbles. And here we have the great prayer. You read in the 32nd of Exodus, don't you? And 33rd. And you have the great unfinished prayer with a dash in your day. This is where I think Moses was so full of tears in sympathy with God that he couldn't pray anymore. This is the way we must pray, isn't it? In sympathy with God. Never pray in sympathy with anyone in revolt against God. Let us always take God's side and be sympathetic with Him in His great movement. Oh my, what a meaning. God said, I have no more patience with this. Uh, I just can't take any more of this. And it's going to be a big change. And Moses intercedes. Isn't this moving and exciting? Verse 18, Deuteronomy 9, and I fell down. Deuteronomy is the second law, isn't it? In other words, Deuteronomy is a repetition of what happened. It's such a beautiful, rich, spiritual book, isn't it? Because the main spiritual ideas of the previous books of the Pentateuch are reviewed here. And so this is a review of what Moses experienced. He said, I fell down before the Lord as at first, 40 days and night. I neither ate bread nor drank water because of all your sin which you committed in doing what was evil in the sight of the Lord to provoke him to anger. For I was afraid of the anger and hot displeasure with which the Lord was wrathful against you in order to destroy you. But the Lord listened to me that time also. And you have in the other record of Exodus 32 how the Lord repented of what he said he was going to do and he did it not. Oh my, do we see the, the movement 
of God's being do we see the sensitivity, the decisions of the great being of God. My, what a moving book the Word of God becomes as we try to get simple and read it as it is stated and and see the the dramatic uh, activity here in the presence of God. Uh, We can't go on to these others at the present. Uh, We we have the concept of Saul being chosen to be king and uh, how God uh, had to repent of this when Saul revolted. We have Jonah uh, and the great repentance of of, uh, Nineveh and how God repented of the judgment he said he was going to send, and he didn't send it. So we have these different illustrations, many, many illustrations, don't we, throughout the precious Word of God. Now we come to the clincher of the whole matter. Because now we have some changes in the internal relationships of the Godhead. And my, if some scholars don't grapple with this, and say certain great impossible uh, expressions, it seems to me. This little chart is not in your notes. If you would be looking for it, it will be available here for you. Here we have a brief chart of the interchangeable relationships of the Godhead. We quoted in our last lecture, John 1.1, where the Lord Jesus said that he was with the Father from eternity. Then uh, we speak of of John 17, 5, uh, where uh, Jesus said in his closing prayer, uh, I now have finished the work. And and he talks about the fellowship which he had with the Father before the world was. So here's something that was past and is not now present. Then we have the different statements here. Uh, We might uh, read Hebrews 1, 1 and 2 here. A great new adventure is going to take place. In time past, God talked uh, to uh, the people and to the nation in, in many ways. After God, after He spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets, many portions in these ways, in these latter days has spoken to us of His Son, and so on. And uh, we might read Galatians 4, uh, 4 and 5. These are very graphic statements and and indicate a change in the interpersonal relationships and positions of the Godhead. Verse 4, when the fullness of time came, God sent forth His Son. When the fullness of time came, God did something. He sent forth His Son, uh, born of a woman, born under the law, in order that He might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. So here's the period of time, and then here's the great adventure. And then dear Jesus says in in 638 of John, I came down from heaven, a past tense. There was a time past, uh, not too far before this, when I came, I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. He came down from heaven and so on. And we could read so many, many passages. Then we have John 1, 14. He tented or dwelt among us for a period of time, didn't he? And so things developed to a very climactic way. And they're resolving to get rid of him. Look at what you read in Luke 22, 69, for example. Now Jesus is under the awful stress of the way he's treated. And now he, he is talking about leaving them. 
And notice there's going to be a change now. He said, from now on, the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of the power of God. And then we have his sacred atonement, and then we have his resurrection. And they saw him go to heaven. And when he went to heaven, he took a resurrected human body with him. Now, somewhere in the universe is a place called heaven. We'll mention this in the next heading here. And in the place called heaven is the center of God's domain. Here is the concentration of the Trinity in their operations, in regulating the moral universe. And now a change is going to happen because there's going to be added to the center of domain of the Trinity a human resurrected body. You remember Stephen was given to see this in his dying moments. He looked up into heaven and he saw the Lord Jesus having arisen, as the verb seems to indicate. In other words, dear Jesus rose to receive him. So how do you put this together if there's not a chronology with God, you see? These are changes in the interpersonal relationships of the Godhead. And no kind of escapism of theological juggling can seem to avoid this firm, simple statement of fact. Then we have something new is going to happen. The Holy Spirit is going to be given in this new wonderful era in which we are privileged to live. No matter how much they prayed in gospel times, they could not have the blessings that you and I are supposed to have. Jesus made this very clear. For example, in John 7, 37 to 39, in the last year of his ministry, apparently, he talks about the glorious relationship in the Holy Spirit. But he said, you can't have it yet. This he spoke of the Spirit, whom those who believe in him were to receive. For the Spirit was not yet given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. We'll see some reasons next week why God could not bless in time past, like he can now bless. But they could not have this new glorious thing that was going to take place until the sacred atonement had been accomplished with his profound moral force of humiliation, so God can bless more than he ever could bless before. And then you have the great advent of Pentecost, when something new is beginning. Remember Jesus said in John 14, 17, the Holy Spirit is with you, but he's going to be in you after it is all accomplished. So something new in intimacy of the Holy Spirit is going to start after Jesus had finished his atonement and had been raised from the dead and ascended. So Peter explains Pentecost in Acts 2.33, doesn't he? Therefore, having been exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured forth this which you both see and hear. 
So here's a genuine chronology when something had to be done before the new procedure could start. And now we have the new wonderful era in which we are the age of the Holy Spirit, which is an age of intimacy. We're not supposed to need rules and regulations in this age because we're supposed to have such a new rule upon earth by force. And there's going to be absolute righteousness. This is future. We've all these different prophecies. The prophecies of the Old Testament. The prophecies of the New. The great details of the book of Revelation. Which apparently is the way God's going to wind up this earthly rebellious situation that we find ourselves in. Now how do you put all this together without a genuine chronology? Why should we want to avoid this? And look at our high priest. Philippians 2 is a lovely chapter, isn't it? You have in verse 8 to 10 the humiliation of Jesus. A little previous to that. Then you have in 9 to 11 the resurrection and glory of Jesus. And now he's higher than he ever was before. And now he's our ever-living high priest to intercede for us. All the beautiful concepts. So how do you put this together? without a simple concept of the duration and experiences of God. And oh, how moving it becomes when we just begin to read. Now, maybe some of you have never read any other manner in the New Testament, and you're to be blessed if you haven't had some of these problems. Uh, But we have some great complexities in other minds that have been greatly stumbled by these many issues. God is making various plans, is he not? And uh, these are still future. Some of them have happened, some have not yet. And God has made all kinds of decisions, as we said, what He's going to do in the future. And uh, we have different prophecies given. First uh, Samuel 2.35 has to do with Jesus appeared. God, he, God says, I will raise up a high priest who will fulfill what I want to be done, and so on. Dear Daniel, what a serenity to read about him. He gets down before the Lord, and the Lord gives him all kinds of secrets, doesn't he, of what God plans to do. So God, God tells I plan to raise this nation up. Then I plan to raise another nation up. Then I plan to raise another nation. And dear Daniel's all excited as the Holy Spirit comes upon him. Do you think he'd rather be out in sin and then down before the Lord? My, talk about excitement. And when we give our little lives to dear Jesus and feel the pulse of his heart, anything compared with this? You say, certainly no. And so here we have many plans that God has revealed. Then in the first Jerusalem conference, Acts 15, uh, James uh, rises up to explain what God is doing. And so in between these mountain peaks, he is calling out the church, both from Jews and Gentiles, anyone who submit to God. He's calling out and formulating the church. So we have these different uh, wonderful revelations, don't we, concerning God's operation. And then Jesus said, I'm coming back like you saw me go into heaven. And, And I'm not much concerned with all the arguments on the eschatology problems whether there's a premillennial coming or a mid, a, a pre-millennial, I should say pre-tribulation coming, a mid-tribulation, a post-tribulation. There seems to be obviously a premillennial coming when Jesus is going to come 
Now, if our marching orders, as I said, occupy till I come whenever that is. Let's be so busy trying to win souls and try to bring souls into the heart of God. And when dear Jesus comes back, may he find us busy for himself and not spending our time arguing about all kinds of little details which we really don't need to know. Let's just keep busy for dear sweet Jesus and trying to represent the nature of God and trying to get souls to listen to the wonderful things of God and get make God happy with souls being reconciled and make the souls happy when they're reconciled and we get off to decide and watch the happiness of God and man. This is the beautiful privilege we have, is it not? And so rather than getting into some of these long controversies and all the bitternesses and the things that are said, and my, you wouldn't think there were Christians talking to each other oftentimes. And this is very pitiful, isn't it? When God says, then let's march out and, and try to reach the souls of individuals and, and bring them into the heart of God. I'm glad this has been the thing the Lord has impressed me upon uh, through the years. So we've got so much to be busy for, haven't we? in our wonderful opportunity. Now look at the bottom of your page five and we have a summary paragraph which nobody can possibly argue with because it's simply a statement of what the Bible says here. Uh, they may argue with the first sentence. The theological dogma, dogma is a good word. It merely means a statement of an idea or a principle that is thought to be true. The theological dogma that God is an eternal now or that time or succession is not an element in the divine existence is evidently a philosophical rather than a biblical concept. But now we have the next sentence which nobody can possibly disagree with. In the Bible, God is presented as a living being who walks or dwells with men, performs definite acts at definite times, who rests. Now, he doesn't rest because he's weary. He rests to contemplate his wisdom and his action, who rests, observes, thinks, and his reasons with remembers, is grieved, is jealous, is provoked to anger, and then causes his wrath to rest, is moved with compassion, who forgives and comforts, delights and rejoices, hearkens unto men, repents, changes his plans, makes new decisions, and so forth. These various acts, states of mind, uh, or experiences obviously conflict and cannot coexist at the same instances in the particular series of events and thus require the chronological element of time for their occurrence. You understand what we mean in the series of events? We have said that God, by virtue of his unthinkable dimensions, can have millions of simultaneous actions toward different situations. But he cannot have contradictory action toward a given situation that's in a duration of time with some changes of activities. I won't go into the next paragraph. This is a, a very, very complicated thing that that some uh, theologians try to say, and they think although God is not living in time, yet he chooses to enter into time. Now, my friends, let's look at it very simply. They've got to have God in time some way because of what we've seen. But now look, if God has no duration to make a choice in, how can he ever choose to enter into anything new? You've got to have a duration to make a choice. If God doesn't have a duration, is eternal now, then how can he ever make a choice to enter into a duration? And so you can see the immensity of some problems that come in when people try to, why not just take what the simple word of God has to say? Praise the Lord. And be sweet and restful about the thing. You don't know how light I felt. 
after I got through with this reading, I said, the conclusion of this reading I referred to, the God of the Bible is not the God of theology like I've been taught. And I felt so strong in the Word of God that move any thousand theologians along your road. I've had my little old feet on the rock of Gibraltar, and I feel there's a stability here because God says so in His Word. And here's the blessing that comes to our heart, isn't it? When we really live the way God has revealed and tried to help us to see. Well, I say praise the Lord. Now we have to say a few remarks upon your pages 6 and 7. Pages 6 and 7 have the idea that we're so grateful that God is revealed in the Bible as living personalities rather than imagining we're under the forces of some kind of a calamity that might happen. Look over to page 7 first. I don't know what exposure you've had to recent scientific journals or writings. I heard one lecture by a high scientist, which was totally frightening. And if you were kind of weak in mind, you might be absolutely distressed by all the calamities that science imagines may come. They think that the world happened by a collision. You never know when the next one's going to come. And you have all of these, they think we're being invaded from outer space. And, and, and there's such a calamitous situation developing inside every journal. I suppose that most of these curious theories are, come from selfish minds who just want to become prominent by proposing different ideas. But I say if all we had to lean upon was the terrifying statements of many scientists, it would certainly be a depressing viewpoint of the hand. And this is what leads us to be so thankful that we're not subject to the happenstance of accident. Well, this is a part of evolution. There was an accident and thus evolution started. And so you have all the, the idea of accidental uh, collapses of different things and different uh, things that might happen. And indeed, this is the most distressing age in which we're living in. And we can be so grateful that we have a great being the beings of the Godhead are living personalities, aren't they? And uh, we can rest in our wonderful God and see the, the composure of His character. Now we give you on your page 6 a few thoughts on, on the personality which you've already thought about together. Uh, with just a couple of words here, we say in the middle of the page, we have to have the... Uh, free will to have personality, don't we? We have to have the ability to originate action, we say. If you're going to know what you should choose, you've got to have intelligence, don't you? So this is a part of personality. So we have to have the will being able to direct the intelligence to think. Now, if you're going to evaluate what is being done in personality, then you have to have this emotional or this experiential ability, don't you? And so we're so thankful that God has this wonderful ability. Then at the bottom of the page, we mention what we've talked about, that God chooses to regulate His dynamic. He's not a victim of His forces of personality. He chooses to regulate His energy by love and kindness and tenderness. And so we say in the middle of your page 7, it should overwhelm us with joy to learn 
that the Bible does not represent God as a great first cause who entered into creation without emotional sensitivity and delight. And so the God of the Bible is not some sort of accidental force on the loose in the universe, originating things at random, as our evolutionary speculations would have us believe. And so we're so glad that the Bible is an account of God's love and sensitivity toward man in providing for and seeking man's reconciliation. And then we have some passages uh, suggesting the personal abilities of the Godhead. And we find the same thing said about God as is said about ourselves. This is what we would expect if we're a little reproduction of the great personalities of the Godhead. So God is said to possess intelligent activity, as we've seen in some of these passages. Uh, we have in uh, Isaiah 55, 8 and 9, a reference to God's thoughts. And he indicates the true intelligence of his thoughts here. My thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. So God has thoughts. He has procedures of reasoning. As we have a number of passages indicating this. Uh, he reasons through the prophets. Come now let us reason together. He, he talks about to Micah. Why don't you love me? Can you find any reason why you shouldn't love me? And uh, he invites man to come with his objections. If, if he has any reason why uh, he shouldn't, they shouldn't love God. Uh, won't you come and reason with me, God says. Then God has experiences of emotion. How precious it is to see this. We've talked about a couple of illustrations there. Uh, we have uh, God's emotion uh, in Ezekiel uh, 6 and 9. And the authorized version has a very penetrating translation. Uh, the middle of this verse here, where we read, I am broken with their whorish heart which have departed from me, and they don't want me. So God is represented as being greed in the depth of personality. New American Standard Bible, I have been hurt by their adulterous hearts which turned away from me, and by their eyes which played a harlot after their idols. So God is represented as being very disturbed in his emotional being over the way mankind are treating him. Just think of the sorrows over Israel when God did all of this we have a sample of this in the 95th Psalm where God is grieved over their lack of response. He said here, For 40 years I loathed that generation and said that they are a people who err in their hearts and they do not know my ways. Therefore I swore in my anger, truly they shall not enter into my rest. So we have so many times the grief and sorrow of God. Think of dear Jesus. Oh, he must have been so sorrowful, mustn't he? And, and as he spoke these words in Matthew 23 and verse 37, he looked around and, and uh, tried to find a warmth, a response. He, he, he looked at the creature. Here's a mother hen who, who has the instinct to give, it, give itself for its young. My, isn't it interesting, the instincts God has put in the creatures. And here are the little chicks looking through the feathers with such serenity. And Jesus looks at this picture and he has sorrow. He says, this is what I want to do with you. And he says, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to me, how often I wanted to gather your children together 
the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. But you were not. You were unwilling. You didn't want me. I wanted you, but you didn't want me. Oh, how sorrowful are these expressions concerning the heart of God. What does God want to do? Rob us? No, he wants to bless us and give us good things from his heart. And so we see the developments, do we not? And uh, there is joy in heaven over one sinner that repenteth, Jesus said. And so God is so deeply concerned with man's reaction. Then God has the ability of self-decision. We saw there was a day when he created man. Then he made a decision to repent of what he said he was going to do with Israel, we saw in the golden calf situation. Then Jesus said, no one is taking my life from me. I lay it down on myself. Then we have again God's will in the salvation of a soul. We have the Holy Spirit, as we mentioned, 1 Corinthians 12, 11. The Holy Spirit is deciding what kind of manifestations he wants to give even as he is willing. So the Holy Spirit is represented as deciding and willing what kind of manifestations he wanted to give. So these were things that are basically true about God. Now as you read your theology about God, you come against a very common word, attribute. And an attribute is simply something that is true about a person or thing. Everything has attributes. We have attributes. Objects have attributes, simply limitations or capacities or abilities. Then you commonly have in theological presentation natural and moral attributes. So a natural attribute is something that is true without choice, something God can't help having. A moral attribute must be something that results from choice, something voluntary, something God does not have to do. As we consider the natural attributes, we have four ideas that come before us. We have the concept of eternity as the, the first natural attribute. Then we have the concept of omnipresence. And then we have the concept of omniscience or the extent of God's knowledge. Then we have the concept of omnipotence or the extent of God's power. So on these four propositions, we have the, the existing part of the being of God. We have the first attribute, eternity of being. And uh, this is a natural attribute over which God has no control as we've seen. And this is the beginning of our thinking concerning God. We have uh, a few passages as illustrative. Uh, Psalm 90 verse 2. Before the mountains were born... Or thou didst give birth to the earth. Again, you have duration, don't you? And the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, thou art God. Giving us the concept of eternal existence, eternal duration. And then we have uh, a passage in uh, Deuteronomy 33, 27. The eternal God is the dwelling place, and underneath are the everlasting arms. The concept of the eternal God, the one who has this eternal existence. Then we have uh, what we've read in the New Testament uh, as a result of creation and the observations. Man is responsible to recognize his eternal power and divine nature. 
which have been clearly seen. Now this, uh, as we point out on the next page, is a development of our thinking. Uh, we have the, the concept here of uh, cause and effect. Uh, we were brought into existence by our parents and they by theirs and so on. And so we go back to our first parents. And uh, this goes back to the first cause, we say. And so we have the concept of eternity, uh, but uh, we can see the plain revelations of the Scripture on this matter. We'll just say a few words about the next uh, area of uh, omnipresence. And this is a natural attribute of the Godhead. We say, by which is it intended that the being of God pervades all space and is everywhere manifested in, at all times. Now again, we have come to the inability of understanding how God can be omnipresent throughout the whole universe. And again, we must depend upon our spiritual consciousness and uh, accept this wonderful statement by faith. We have no idea at all how God can be present throughout the whole universe. Uh, we will know, however, someday in detail as our minds are enlightened and we get some new equipment to perceive the reality of spiritual existence. We have, for example, Jeremiah 23, uh, 24, uh, giving us a statement of God's omnipresence. Can a man hide himself in hiding places so I do not see him, declares the Lord? Do not I fill heaven and earth, declares the Lord? And so we have Paul uh, in the, his discourse at Athens in the 17th of Acts uh, talking about God's omnipresence, that God is near everyone and is trying to contact everyone uh, to get a response uh, from everyone. And God's plan was that every one of us should live and move in a consciousness of the great being of God. Now this is beyond our understanding, but look how much is beyond our understanding. My, you have the boastfulness of, of science, don't you? And how much they know about everything. But really, we know practically nothing about the basic things that, that we're observing in action. So we can say to observe what something does is not the same as observing what something is. And most of scientific education is learning how to use things that are observed to exist without understanding exactly what these things were. For example, what is electricity? Here was a magnetic field and someone was turning a coil in a magnetic field and it took a little effort to turn it. And, and when it was turned, there was this mysterious thing that went through the wires. What is it? Nobody has any idea what it is. It doesn't seem to wear the wires out. It has an unthinkable mobility. Here we have in Europe a 50 cycle. So 50 times every second, if we had incandescent bulbs, we had a high-speed camera, this room would be dark at night. Our eyes are not quick enough to pick it up, so it looks like a continuous light. Who understands how 50 times every second there can be this racing of the current for hundreds of miles back to the generator and back in this all tremendous, unthinkable rapidity? And so how, who understands what this mysterious thing is? 
And how about the radio situation? My, most of you have missed one of the greatest excitements of life. We never imagined of any such thing as radio years ago. Would you believe it? That radio would begin in 1901. There was a young electrical professor at Illinois Institute of Technology in Illinois in Chicago by the name of DeForest. And he invented the vacuum tube. And here we have the first radio transmission about four blocks. All the excitement that existed were actually going through the air for four blocks. And who knows what's going on here? Just think of the, the mysterious situation. Of course, this became a, this was a secret for many years until it got practical for most of us to build our little sets and, and then it got publicity. Uh, who understands what this mysterious thing is that goes through? And as we built a larger and larger radio, and what kind of excitement do you think I had when in my living room with no outside connections now, I pick up the Belgian Congo in my living room here in Chicago. And I say, my, I didn't know the Belgian Congo was in my room here. And here, there's no outside connection. Here we got brick walls, and here it comes through. And you can pick up all kinds of distant areas right here. Who has any understanding of this? We learn how, what are the wavelengths, and what are all these mysterious things that are going on? My, we, we know so little, do we? Uh, not of the very mysterious things. And who's going to even talk about television? There was a time when they didn't even dream of electrical television. And here you have the 50th anniversary last year of the first television uh, broadcast, which uh, was a uh, transmission uh, from uh, Washington to New York 50 years ago. And what is this a missing thing? Then we're going to have color television. Who understands what this is? And you got a little television antenna, and you turn the thing, and, and there's different relation of waves in the room, so you get a change in the situation. Look at all the mysteries that we're surrounded with. And who understands what magnetism is? You remember reading in your books on physics. they got to say something about it, so they got a bar here with all kinds of molecules, a different array, disturbing array. Then they say, well, no, you magnetize this thing, either by a coil or by a transfer, and then they represent the molecules as lined up, and you get a plus and a minus. And what, the, what happens in the bar? Nobody certainly knows. Then you can split this bar and you get another plus and you get another minus. And what is this thing? What's the magnetic north pole, for example? Why does it stay where it is? Which enables ships and our airplanes to hit their destination within a couple of hundred feet across the ocean. And so here we have the mysterious situations all around us, do we not? And so it's not surprising if we don't understand the, the details of how God can be everywhere present. And so we're so thankful, aren't we, that God is with us to assure us in his confident presence of his lovely indicated love. And we know that what Jesus said, go into your closet and open your heart and God who sees in secret shall hear you and reward you by his presence. So we know this works and, and therefore we have the great confidence that we'll know more in the future.